As most of you all know, my name is Terry Dykstra. I'm the campus minister for RUF International here at the University of Texas. And I just want to start by saying thank you for encouraging us. My wife and our new son have been attending here, but we're so thankful for the support of Grace and Peace in that work. We're th so thankful for the encouragement that y'all have been to us in doing that, and especially as new parents. And with the start of the fall semester coming in a little over a month, we are gearing up. We're getting ready for lots of events, for new students coming in. And this last year, we've had, we had several families, several of y'all expressed an interest and actually hosted events for us. And I just want to say again, I've done this several times, but there's still time. It's not too late. If you are wanting to do something this semester, this year, we would love to do that. I would love to get you on our email updates if you'd like to continue praying for us and praying for the ministry. So please just find me. We're around, we're tall, so we're easy to see. But uh, just let us know. We'd be happy to get you guys plugged in. We're going to be looking, as Max said, at Psalm 51 this morning. And that psalm was written by a guy who was king of Israel. God made him king over Israel. And scripture tells us he was a man after God's own heart. He also killed a Philistine warrior named Goliath and drove the Philistine army away from God's people. He wrote many of the Psalms. And God promised that he would always have an heir seated on the throne. Of course, we're talking about King David. And all of that sounds great. Any of you who are on the fence about Christianity, you know, I could come up here and tell you about all these great things David did and say, look who you can be like. Look how God is going to bless you if you follow him. And then we could pray and be out of here and head to brunch. But of course, there's more to David's story. The Jesus Storybook Bible, which is great, even if you don't have small kids to read it with, says of David that he had a heart like God's own heart, but he did some terrible things. He even murdered a man. Not only did he murder a man, but he murdered other soldiers in his command to kill Uriah. All this was happening during the time when the kings go out to battle, according to 2 Samuel 11. Of course, David was king, but he was not out to battle. He was just chilling in his palace. In baseball, it's three strikes and you're out. And by my count, David is at least six strikes in without knowing how many other people he killed. So he was not doing a good job with what God had set him to do. And if this is the first you're hearing of all this, you might think, man, David kind of sounds like a loser. Who could forgive these things? Who could love a guy like this? And what Christian, what church, what God would prop up somebody like this as an example to follow? He's a sinner, a big one. But as we see in the psalm, David is not so much a moral example for us to follow as he is a trophy of God's love, his grace, and his forgiveness. When he was confronted with his sin, he wrote this psalm. So let's take a look at what he wrote. In Psalm 51. Okay. To the choir master, a psalm of David, 
when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God now in prayer. God in heaven, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me by your Holy Spirit, and I ask that you would open all of our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear what it is you would have to say to us by your Spirit, Lord. Thank you for your grace and mercy and love to us. We pray in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. The psalm reminds us that God will forgive those who turn to him. And as we wrestle with the tension between God's mercy and God's justice, we see three pieces in seeking God's forgiveness. First, we see the offense. Then we see the price. Lastly, we'll see the payment. First, the offense. David is coming to God to confess his offense. In the Hebrew text, verse 1 is the first part of the psalm that we see before the English verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David is not covering up. He's no longer escaping what he did. He's got it, verse 1. He says, this is what I have done. This is why I'm going to God. So to all of us, as we come to God, we would have more than just one thing, of course, as with David. But we have this kind of verse 1 saying, this is what we're coming to God with. We are offenders before God. But do we really believe that we're not good? Do we really believe we're nothing but criminals before God? I mean, we're pretty good people. We're at church every week. And even if we're not, maybe we're really nice or we're doing plenty of good in the community, in the city, 
and for others? Aren't we good enough? The answer is no. David's position is clear. He knew he wasn't good enough, and he didn't think he was. Again, he stole a man's wife, had a child with her, and killed her husband and some other people that had nothing to do with it just to cover up what he did. And we might be quick to dismiss ourselves from David and say, well, I haven't done anything like that. I haven't done anything that bad. Well, let's not forget what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you have had anger towards a brother, you have murdered him in your heart. Or James, who says, if you've broken any one part of the law, you've broken all of it. We are not good people. We are nothing but offenders and criminals before God. If we think we are good enough, we'll demand that others be good enough. If we think it's our ability, we're going to be slow to show grace and mercy to other people. We're just going to say, hey, look, we can do it. Look how I'm doing it. You can do it too. Just try harder. This is called legalism. It's when we do things, say things, continue things in order to get whatever it is we're looking to get. With God, we may be looking to earn salvation, say, what can I do, God, to inherit eternal life? That was a question that Jesus was asked a bunch of times. What can I do? There's got to be something I can do. We may do it with our family or at work. Look at all these things I've been doing. Where is my reward? Scripture tells us, though, that we are totally unable to do good. Isaiah 64 tells us that even the things that we think are good, our good deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. Also, Romans 3, Paul says, there is none who does good, not even one. But again, we, we have this mindset, we have this just do it mentality that we just have to get it together, we just have to try harder and we'll be able to do it, we'll be able to do good enough. I'm a new father. Many of you guys know we had our first son, Arthur, a couple months ago. We were very thankful for him. And the reason I bring him up other than to let you know about him if you don't know about him is to say, to, to think that we can make ourselves right with God, to think that we can do enough good in order to earn God's favor would be like me telling Arthur, who's two months old, clean your own diaper, just clean yourself up, just try harder, just do better. What kind of father would I be if I did that? A terrible one, right? It's impossible and ridiculous to suggest that him or any baby can clean themselves up. It's just as impossible and ridiculous to think that we can clean ourselves up inside and out before God. We are not only unable, but we are guilty. We are offenders, and so we must confess as David confesses. He comes to God and he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Before you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David disobeyed and offended the God who made him king and who promised that his kingdom will last forever. And David understands that that is who he has wronged first and foremost. Of course, he's not denying that he has sinned against Uriah, against the nation God has set him to reign over, but he understands in his sinfulness that his sin is first and foremost against a holy God. So he traces back his sin. He says, how far does this go? How deep is this sin in me? And what he finds in verse five is that his sin is rooted 
where his existence is rooted. It's rooted in his conception. And friends, the same is true of us. As good as we think we are, we were born into sin. We are sinful from birth. And that's not an excuse, though we can make it one. We say, well, look, everybody's sinful. My sins aren't as bad as David's or anybody else's, though. So really, I'm not as bad. The horror of David's actions forced him to trace back his sin. And what he found is that his sin was deeper than even he thought. His record was far from clean. And again, there's nothing that we can do to change that fact. There's nothing that we can do on our own to clear our record. Our guilt means that we are undeserving of God's love, of his mercy, and of his grace. This psalm reminds us of that. And understanding our sinfulness can feel hopeless, especially when we realize that there's nothing that we can do. The only thing we can do is what David does and go to God. It's him who we have wronged and who we have sinned against and disobeyed. We deserve his punishment. We don't deserve his grace and mercy. Our offense is so bad that we need a miracle to escape it. And that brings us to the price. There's always a price. Romans 6, verse 23, tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's what we, by our sinfulness, that we are born into, that is what we've deserved. That is what we have earned, is a ticket to the grave. And scripture tells us that we can't pay the price. Jesus in his ministry tells a parable of the unmerciful servant where he compares the king of heaven as God with a king looking to settle accounts with his servants. One particular servant owed him the equivalent of $6 billion. He had no hope of paying that back. So the king was going to sell him, his wife, and his children, and all their stuff just to get back some of that, that he wouldn't be totally lost, though he wasn't going to get back $6 billion from even doing that. But the servant pleaded with the king. He says, please be patient with me and I will pay it back. The king is no dummy. He knows that the servant has no hope and no ability to pay back what he owes. But Jesus says the king took pity on the servant. He forgave the debt and he let the servant go free. Our relationship with God is no different. The price is great because our offense is great. In any situation, the person forgiving an offense must assume the cost of the offense. In this case, the king who has the power and the means to do it must absorb the $6 billion that he was owed. He's still out that money that doesn't just like appear from nowhere because he forgave the debt. He is taking it on himself because he has pity on the servant. Again, not because of anything that the servant could do or could bring to the table, but he is merciful to the servant. Put it another way, the closest two sides of the Grand Canyon are about 600 feet apart, though the average distance is 10 miles. So if somebody, you know, if God came and said to us, all right, if you can jump the two closest sides, you'll get a ticket to heaven. That will be your symbolic gesture of overcoming your sinfulness. Our only hope would be to send out the world record holder in the long jump, whose name is Mike Powell. Only problem is his record is 29 feet, four and a quarter inches. That's as much hope as we have between jumping the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. There's nothing we can do. 
we have no hope of paying him back. We see in the psalm that David's only hope, because he knows all these things, his only hope is God's mercy. He understands his guilt and standing. He understands that he deserves nothing but punishment. So he approaches God not with the promise to be better, not with excuses or justification that his sin wasn't actually that bad, and not with a vow to try harder to actually do it himself. He comes to God and confesses. His only hope is in God himself. He knows that God is loving, that he is patient, and that he is merciful. And his only hope is that God would be who he is to David and be merciful to him. That's where David's hope is. He says in the psalm, he says that his only hope for forgiveness is according to God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. Of course, we know that God is also just. He must punish sin. It would be injustice to not punish sin. The price must be paid. Our sins must be paid for. Again, our wages are death. It's what we deserve. So, where will the payment come from? There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can bring to God and say, can't you let me go? Can't you forgive my sins because of this, this, and this? Our only hope is to do what David did, to go to the king and to seek his grace and mercy. He does not owe it to us, and he may not give it to us. But it's only the king that can cancel the death penalty. But again, God is just in canceling our death penalty when we come to him. But how? Does he just let us skate? Does he just forgive and forget? No. God is just in canceling our death penalty because he has made the payment for us. Forgiveness is costly. And he paid the price by giving his only son, by giving Jesus for us, that we might be forgiven, that he might cancel our debt. He absorbed the cost of it by sending Jesus to die for us. And because he bought us with his only son, he will be sure to reclaim us. He will be sure to finish the work. That's how in verse 7, David is able to say, purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If God is the one doing these things, they're actually going to happen, and he's actually going to do them. If it's up to us, not so much. <laughs> Forgiveness is not injustice. Forgiveness is love. That's how God maintains his justice in forgiving our sins. That's why he paid the price for us, because he loves us. That's why Jesus became sin in our place on the cross. As hopeless as our condition is, as great as our offense is before God, and as high as the price is for us to pay, God's love is greater than the offense. God's love for us, for you, is greater than the debt that we owe to him. He paid the price. He brought our hearts from death to life, not just now, not just on this Sunday morning, but forever if we are in him. Again, it doesn't matter what we do. We can't do anything. And we might think, as happened a lot, as we see by Paul's letters, oh, God's love and his grace is so good, it doesn't matter what I do, he's gonna forgive me. That's not the right response. If we, 
If we wrong somebody, if we wrong God, if we wrong our loved ones, our friends, and they forgive us, they're probably not gonna keep forgiving us. They're also probably not gonna love us if we just abuse and trash and stomp all over their love. We see that even with the parable of the unmerciful servant. He was shown tremendous love and mercy by this king, covering a debt that he had no hope to repay, only to then go and strangle another servant who owed him 100 talents, which was much, much smaller than the sum that he owed. It was like 0.1%. Jesus in his ministry says, he who is forgiven much loves much, and that is to be our response to God. He has forgiven us much. Again, we are sinful from birth. We have no hope, but he has loved us. He loves you. His love for us is perfect and faithful. Again, none but the king can withdraw the death penalty. But it's even better when the king is our father. God is not the disappointed father we would make him out to be every time we sin, where we're just like, really, he did it again? I know sometimes that's how I think of God. That may be how others of you think of God when we sin, especially with repeated sins. Our sin does grieve God, but he is not ashamed of us. He's a father who loves his children. Jesus, another parable Jesus tells is of the prodigal son. <clears throat> there he shows a picture of God as the loving father who is waiting anxiously for his lost son to return. He's given the son his inheritance. The son has gone out and spent it all, lived crazy, had a month in Vegas, all that stuff, only to return, only in hopes of earning back his father's love and favor which his father doesn't even listen to. He runs out as soon as he sees him way in the distance. He runs to him and embraces him and throws a party for him. That is what God is waiting to do for us. He is our father, he loves us, and he is waiting on us no matter how recklessly we've lived. Again, what kind of father would God be to us if he asked us to do what was impossible, if he asked us to clean our dirty diapers? He would be cruel and demanding, and that is not God. God is loving and merciful and faithful. We need to go to God, and we need him to clean us inside and out. As I say all this, you may be thinking, oh, that sounds great but you don't know my sin. You wouldn't love me if you knew my sin. Certainly God cannot forgive my sin. I'm too far gone. I don't know your sin, but I do know that God knows your sin and there is no sin too great for him to forgive. He is waiting for you. I do know that David stole a man's wife, had a child with her, then killed her husband and some other soldiers, again, who had nothing to do with it other than being in the same battalion, just to cover up what he did. But God forgives David because he loves David. God forgives David because he paid the price for David. God forgives David because he nailed those sins on the cross with his only son. Friends, that's where our sins are nailed as well if we are in Christ. If that's not convincing enough to you, I'll give you another example. In the late 80s and early 90s, there was a serial killer here in America named Jeffrey Dahmer. In addition to killing many people, he did evil, gruesome, and awful things to his victims. And he was serving 16 life sentences on his 16 murder counts. 
And so while he was in prison serving that term, he came to faith in Christ and he was baptized. God loves Jeffrey Dahmer and he forgives him because he nailed Jeffrey's sins on the cross. But that may be offensive to you. There have been plenty of people who, reading the book that the pastor who baptized Dahmer wrote, have said, if he's in heaven, I don't wanna go there. Who would be excited about a God that forgives these kinds of things? But friends, God has paid the price for us. He paid the price for Jeffrey Dahmer. If it's offensive to us, it's because we don't need God's grace and forgiveness. Grace and forgiveness are offensive to those who don't need them. That's why the Pharisees were offended at Jesus spending all his time with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinful people. They thought, hey, we're, we're the good guys. Look at us over here. They knew those prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, they knew they needed Jesus. They needed his love. They needed his grace and his forgiveness. And Jesus did love them. And Jesus forgave them. And friends, we need Jesus too. Wherever we are, whatever we've done, whatever we're going to do, we need Jesus. Like Jeffrey Dahmer, like David, like Adam and Eve, like Abraham, like Jacob, like the Israelites, like even Jesus' disciples. We are all trophies of God's grace. None of us are gonna be the moral exemplar that earns our way into heaven. It's not gonna be us. And like these people, we may forget what God has done for us. We may forget his mercy over and over and over and over again to us. We may forget that God loves us but friends, he loves us. He loves you. This table that we're about to come to is a sign of his love for us. He doesn't ask us to bring anything to this table, but asks us to come that he might give us life. He nailed Jesus to the cross because he loves you. He loves us. As easy as it is to listen to Satan's lies, to believe that God can't love us, that we're beyond his love, we must stop listening to the evil one. We must listen to God's word. We have his word. We have his love letters. We have everything that he has done for us and he has shown to us. He's our father and he is waiting for us. So let's go to him. Let's confess our sins. Again, none is too great for him. None is beyond his love. It's by his love and by the wounds of Christ that we are healed. So let's go now to our heavenly father in prayer and ask that he would forgive us and bring us home. God in heaven, I thank you so much for your word to us this morning. I thank you that you love us, that you have forgiven us by the blood of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would just be with us, that you would work in our hearts, in our minds. Lord, bring us to you. Bring us to your table here in a moment. And Lord, please guide us by your love that we may share with others. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.